Uh, so my great-grandparents, my grandma and grandpa, my mom, now my stepdad, uh, all really uh, influenced the, de the development of my faith and my calling. Uh, I grew up in the Rocky Mountain House Church of the Nazarene uh, with Pastor Dale Hansen as my pastor um, and also my honorary father, but that's a story for another day. Um, he's actually here this morning, um, and I had to pass up the opportunity uh, to see the Stamps play. I hope to say to see the Stamps win, but unfortunately that didn't happen uh, last night. Um, but I thought I shouldn't stay up that late the night before I was preaching. Uh, but Teddy and Annie were delighted to have Grandpa Dale come to church with them this morning. Uh, so all of this to say, uh, I've had the incredible privilege of having a wealth of godly women and men pour into me over the years and shaped me into who I am today. Uh, outside of the church and my family, you can also find me working as a teacher, uh, teaching grade two students. Uh, so most of the people I usually teach are about seven years old, uh, but please bear with me this morning. Uh, I'm bringing the message this morning, as you've heard mentioned before, so that the, the wonderful women and men on our pastoral team can attend a retreat, uh, a much-needed, uh, much well-deserved retreat this weekend, uh, spending time in prayer and solitude, uh, renewing their relationship with God, and just being refreshed. And they'll be back with us next week. So this morning, we're continuing to look at the book of Mark. Uh, we've been looking at this for a few weeks now. Um, and this morning, we're going to focus on three parables in Mark chapter 4, verses 21 to 34. If you were with us last week, either in person or online, you'll recall that Pastor Trent spoke about the parable of the sower in Mark 4, verses 1 to 20. So we looked at what a parable is and why the parables that Jesus so often used to teach are not understood by everyone right away. The paradoxes of the parables mirror the paradox of the kingdom of God, and those who reject its message do not have ears to hear. We'll see more of this theme in the text this week. Last week, we looked at the four types of soil where the seed was scattered, and we reflected on which type of soil we are, prayerfully seeking that God would change our hearts so that they are fertile soil, ready to hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. During the sermon last week, Pastor Trent received a text message from a member of the congregation about the types of soil. And this text message asked, who is responsible for cultivating the soil so that those on the outside can be found inside? And I think that person for their thoughtful question and their reflection on the message last week. I would suggest that while it's ultimately God who changes hearts, each of us who would say that the seed has fallen on the fertile soil of our own hearts has a responsibility to help cultivate the soil so that others can receive the word as well. And I think prayer is a hugely important part of this. I think that we all have a role to play as we have the immense privilege of being invited to partner with God and join in the work he is already doing in his world, to participate in bringing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And this morning, as we look at these next three parables in Mark chapter four, we're going to look further into what it means for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So earlier in the service, we heard Nathan read from Psalm 18. And as we look into God's word this morning, I would invite you to reflect on how the passage we heard from earlier might connect into this ongoing narrative in Mark. So this morning, we're going to dive into each of the parables a little bit and examine the text of each one. Then we'll look at some common themes between the three parables and the themes that tie these parables to the parable of the sower from last week. 
And we'll look at the implications of these parables on our lives in the here and now, in Calgary, or wherever you're joining us from online in 2021. So the first parable we'll, we'll look at this morning is found in Mark chapter 4, verses 21 to 25. And it's about a lamp on a stand. Uh, if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app, you can turn to Mark chapter 4, uh, starting at verse 21, if you'd like to follow along as we work our way through this passage. So this parable continues the theme of hiddenness and disclosure in the kingdom of God, which has been an ongoing theme since Mark chapter 2. So the text says, He said to them, Do you bring in a lamp and put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And even more, whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. So this section starts with a rhetorical question. He said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? It's really an absurd notion. Uh, Teddy and Annie received a gift for Christmas. And by Christmas, I actually mean like in July because of how long we spent in South Africa and the COVID restrictions, but I digress. Um, they received this gift, um, and it's a lamp. It projects stars onto the ceiling in their bedroom, and they, they absolutely love it. But this lamp came with a cover, so that if you turn on the lamp but don't remove the cover, instead of shining the light from the stars all over the ceiling, uh, like a nightlight, um, the stars don't show up at all, and the room remains dark. I actually have no idea what the purpose of the cover is or why you would design a lamp with a cover that would block it so no one can see the light. And that's exactly the point that Jesus is making here. Do you bring in a lamp just to cover it up so that no one can see the light? Of course not. That's ridiculous and it completely defeats the purpose of the lamp. When you have a lamp, you put it on its stand or you put it out where everyone can see it where everyone can see its light and it can serve its intended purpose of lighting up its surroundings. So the lamp in this passage uh, might be an allusion to Jesus, who's the light of the world, uh, which is a metaphor that we see used in the book of John. Or it might refer to the message of Jesus, which had to be shared widely and publicly, not hidden where it could not be heard. This continues the theme of the parable that Pastor Trent spoke about last week. The seed is scattered widely, but it takes root and produces good fruit only in receptive soil. So the point of this question about the lamp comes in the next verse. Whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed. The good news of God's purposes has been brought out into the open in the words and the works of Jesus. The good news of the kingdom of God is meant to be proclaimed, not to be hidden. But the mysteries of the kingdom, the good news that Jesus is bringing, may only be heard by those who are prepared to hear it. This is why he says, if anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Jesus asks them to consider carefully what they hear. Uh, another way to say this that perhaps captures the meaning a little better is pay attention. Jesus repeats this over and over in this whole section. He says, listen, hear, pay attention. He goes on to say, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Another way, uh, reading this in another version, um, is as you give, so you will receive. In fact, you will receive even more. So this is also emphasizing the message of the previous parable, the parable of the sower. Those who hear 
who truly hear the word produce an abundant harvest. Whoever has will be given more. The word is meant to be heard, the seed to grow, the lamp to give light. Ultimately, God's purposes will be victorious. But our responsibility still remains. Anyone with ears to hear may hear. Therefore, everyone must take care how they hear. But whoever does not have, even that which they have will be taken from them. This statement can be seen as an implication that those who ought to have known what was happening in Jesus' work, the teachers, the scribes, even his own family, get it wrong. So by rejecting Jesus, even what they have will be taken away. Let's move on for a moment to the next parable, found in verses 26 to 29. He also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. So here we see a parable with a sower who plants a seed, who cannot explain its growth, but who harvests a crop when it produces fruit. So the sower in this parable is anyone who proclaims the good news of the kingdom. Here in Mark, it can refer to the 12 and to others that are reading the gospel letter of Mark who are doing the will of God, but it also expands to include us today. So once the sower scatters the seed, it doesn't matter whether he sleeps or gets up, he can do nothing to make the crop grow. And that's the way of the word of God, the good news of the kingdom, the way that it grows in the fertile soil of people's hearts is a mystery to us. We spread the good news, we do the will of God, but ultimately it's him who makes the seed grow. However, as soon as the grain is ripe, the farmer springs into action and puts the sickle to it. And the image here is joyful. A good harvest is always a blessing. We then come to the final parable in this section. And it's short, just a couple of verses, from verse 30 to 32. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. <clears throat> this parable reminds me uh, of my good friends, Stefan Ryan Sia. Uh, this spring, they cut open a single tiny humble little grape tomato and planted the seeds, not really expecting much growth. Uh, but what resulted was a huge, huge harvest. Uh, to call it an abundance would be an understatement. Uh, several hundred tomatoes resulted from the tiny seeds of the single little grape tomato. Uh, and I'm pretty sure some birds were probably able to perch in the shade of the tomato plants as well. So in this parable, we see a little bit of irony, that the smallest seed becomes the largest plant. Insignificant beginnings do not determine final results. And this is good news in the kingdom of God. Despite the inauspicious beginnings of Jesus being born in a stable, brought up in Nazareth, which is the place where in John 1:46 Nathaniel asks, can anything good come from Nazareth? Despite the inauspicious beginnings of the good news being proclaimed by a Galilean peasant, God's ultimate purposes will be accomplished. The good purposes of God will come to fruition. And these are beyond the imagination of those who are planting the seed and watching it grow. 
just as how large the mustard plant will grow is beyond the imagination of those who plant the tiny seed, with such big branches that birds can perch in its shade. And the, the backdrop of the Roman Empire in this passage continues the irony of this parable, which is seen in Christ's death and resurrection. The small, humble beginnings of the message of God's kingdom versus the imperial might of Rome. In Jesus' crucifixion, it seems that Rome and its servants have defeated the Messiah, when in fact, Jesus uses the Roman cross, what was a symbol of Rome's power and might, for the establishment of his eternal power over death and the grave. Small beginnings, but unimaginably large result. So we see these three short parables in this text. The lamp of the stand, the parable of the growing seed, and the parable of the mustard seed. But what ties these parables together? What themes can we see here? And what does it mean for us living in the time after Jesus' resurrection? So one of the things we can notice, and I mentioned earlier, repeated over and over in this section, and also a tie to the parable that we examined last week, is this idea of hearing. Jesus says, listen up, hear, pay attention. Those who have ears, let them hear. We see here the difference between just hearing with our ears versus hearing with our hearts, or the difference between hearing and truly listening. There are those who look and hear, but do not truly see and listen. And those people then lose the opportunity of truly seeing and hearing the good news because their hearts are hardened to it. These parables would have been an encouragement to Mark's readers, likely Gentiles living in Rome, who would have been experiencing persecution and in their view, slow progress of the good news they were sharing. And this, this section helps us and them to understand that the good news is not accepted by all, and some simply do not understand. So for them, everything sounds as if it's opaque parables that they hear but do not grasp. So what about you? Who are you today? Are you truly listening? Are the eyes and ears of your heart open to the message that God has for you? Is your heart ready to receive the good news of the kingdom of God? Or are you looking and hearing without truly seeing and listening? As Jesus says, listen up, hear, pay attention. God has good news for you. The mystery and the paradox of his kingdom is good news. We see this good news in Luke 4.18 when Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Good news for the poor, sight for the blind, freedom for the prisoners and the oppressed. This is the good news of God's kingdom. And the paradox is that his kingdom is here and his kingdom is also yet to come. These parables also challenge us to announce the good news to all, even while we recognize that sometimes the word will not take root and sometimes will not produce the desired result. As Paul says in Galatians 6, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. There's no restriction on the announcement of God's good purposes. They are all embracing, and there's no preconditions of who should be told. Let us share the good news with all people. How many times have we been hesitant to share the good news with someone? For a variety of reasons. 
We might think that person could never be interested in the gospel. We might be afraid of rejection. Maybe it's someone we encounter who's not the type of person we typically interact with. These parables make it clear. The good news is for all. We are to spread the good news through our words and through our actions to all people, and it's up to God to make the seed grow. As Pastor Blaine often says, and I apologize if I misquote you a little bit, but we need to pray for eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand what God is doing. And we need to be open to whoever he brings across our path so that we can partner with him in the work he's doing. And what a privilege that is. A final theme I'd like to draw out from these parables, and I think one of the most important ones for us, uh, is this, this theme of idolatry which are the things that prevent the word from being productive. We see this in the parable of the sower from last week, and we see echoes of this in the parables we looked at this week, as some are ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding of all of these parables, these teachings of Jesus. So what are the things that cause this lack of seeing and understanding, both among those on the outside, as it were, and even sometimes in our own hearts? Sadly, time and time again, so many things in our lives prevent us from truly seeing and listening to what God has for us, from fully participating in the kingdom work that God is doing and inviting us to participate in. There's this slow, subtle creep of idolatry that comes into our lives. And now, sometimes when we hear the word idolatry, we tend to think of golden statues and money, and these things certainly can be forms of idolatry. But I think the more common type of idolatry is anything that takes our attention from the kingdom of God and prevents us from bearing fruit. Anything that becomes more important in our hearts than God. And it often actually starts out as something good. Legitimate concerns about family, health, education, jobs, even the good things we enjoy in life can all become problematic if they take our attention away from God. Children are an amazing blessing from God and a big responsibility with which to be entrusted. And it's vitally important to devote lots of time to raising them well, discipling our children. Um, after all, as parents, we're the ones primarily responsible for their spiritual formation. However, when our focus becomes more on our children than on God, when we become so wrapped up in their schedules and activities that we forsake the meeting of believers, when we're more concerned with them than we are with our relationship with God, they can actually become idols in our lives. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm in no way suggesting that you should in any way neglect your children or their needs, just that the priorities of your heart need to be ordered right so that God is first and foremost in your heart and mind, even more so than these things that are very, very important. Our jobs can become idols in our lives. When we become so wrapped up in the pursuit of getting ahead that we compromise our values, or, and I think this is particularly common in helping professions, nurses, physicians, teachers, when there's so much pressure to find your identity in your career. As a teacher, I find this to be very true in teaching. That pressure to see yourself as a teacher at the core of who you are, that I'm a, I'm a doctor or I'm a nurse down to the very center of my being. And seeing yourself this way opens up the door to that slippery slope of idolatry. Who I am is a child of God. And when I teach, I do so because it's what he's called me into. And teaching is the vehicle through which I can reach out and show Christ-like love and compassion to a broken world in need. 
to be the hands and feet of Jesus to those little image bearers of God that show up in my classroom every day. Not because who I am at my core is a teacher or a doctor or a nurse, an accountant, a social worker, an engineer, a business person. That's not who I am because that so quickly becomes idolatry. But because who I am is a follower of Jesus and I'm following him into the, wor the world to spread the good news of his kingdom through my words and actions in a broken world that so desperately needs him. This has to be my motivation for everything I do, or else my job can very quickly become an idol in my life. Many of us have seen and experienced that we as individuals and a church can even make an idol out of marriage and family. How often do we suggest, in overt and subtle ways, that being married and having children is the pinnacle of the Christian life? We treat people who are unmarried like their journey as a Christian can't be fully realized until they're married. Rather than treating marriage as a possibility, we treat it as an eventuality, and we gear so much of our focus towards marriage and family pursuits that those who are unmarried are sometimes left feeling like they're not fully part of the church. We're sometimes guilty of pressuring people into relationships and marriages they shouldn't be in with people who aren't best for them personally or spiritually simply because they don't want to be single due to the idol that we've created of marriage and family. And then when we carry this out to its end, we have these people who get into these wrong relationships and wrong marriages because they've been led to believe it's better to be with someone, anyone, than it is to remain single. And then they spend so much time and effort trying to fix something that maybe never should have been in the first place that their primary focus and attention is taken off of God. The simple fact of the matter is, the goal of the Christian life is not marriage and children. The goal of the Christian life, according to the Westminster Catechism, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Some people do this in the context of marriage and family. Others do this in the context of singleness. Both are equally valid. And according to Paul, it's actually sometimes better for the Christian to remain unmarried because they can focus even more on the things of God and the work of the kingdom. And sometimes getting married means they lack the time and attention to do the things God's called them to. And Jesus was unmarried too. And I don't think anyone would argue that he didn't live a full Christian life. So don't get me wrong. Marriage can certainly be good in its proper place, but not when we elevate it out of its proper place. Then it becomes idolatry. And it can be one of the things that causes the seed that's sown not to flourish. For the light from the lamp to be hidden... It can be one of the things that cause people to be ever hearing, but never understanding. In our affluent culture, the pursuit of money and wealth and the de desire for things is another thing that can squeeze the life out of Christians, causing them to become fruitless and even to wither and die. There's another irony to be seen here, that so often the larger people's homes become, the less hospitable and generous they become. They no longer have time for hospitality, for generosity of spirit, for the marginalized. And these areas of idolatry in our lives don't happen suddenly, which is what makes them so insidious and so difficult to notice. It's that subtle creep of idolatry out of things that, in and of themselves, are often good. But the shift towards them becoming idols in our lives happens slowly over time, and we often don't recognize it until it's already happened. And then we become the people who look and hear, but don't see and understand the kingdom of God. But the good news is, if you're hearing this message today, if you're thinking about this, if God is stirring your heart towards his kingdom, 
then it's not too late. We know that God's kingdom is a paradox, that it is here and it's also yet to come, a present reality and a future hope. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done here on earth. So what can this kingdom work look like for us? Well, first it can and should look like abiding in Christ and in his spirit so that we bear good fruit. Galatians tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you're living in his Spirit, then your life will be characterized by these good fruits, which will draw others to his Spirit living in you. His kingdom is brought about by the outflowing of good fruit from believers who are led by his Spirit. His kingdom work can also look like generosity and hospitality, and not just to our friends, or people who are similar to us, but to people who are different. It's relatively easy to invite a friend over for a meal, although during this COVID time, you might argue that's not as easy as it once was, but it's, it's much more difficult to show love and hospitality to someone we don't normally interact with. Do you have any of these people in your life? And if not, could you go out of your way to show kindness and hospitality to someone who it might be difficult or uncomfortable to show love or hospitality to? It could be the coworker who no one wants to be around because they're cranky all the time. Maybe it's the person at school who eats lunch alone every day. Maybe it's the homeless man who walks by your car with a cardboard sign at the intersection who you try to avoid making eye contact with. Maybe it's the person you cross the street to avoid because they look a little strange. Maybe it's the person who serves you coffee at Tim Hortons and you don't have the time of day for them because you're late for work. It's so much harder to show love and hospitality to these people than it is to our friends, the people who are like us. But in doing this, by showing kindness, generosity, and hospitality, even to those, and maybe especially to those who are unlike us, even at times we don't feel like doing so, we're bringing the kingdom of God. We can also participate in God's kingdom work by pursuing justice for the oppressed, for the marginalized. God is loving, kind, and merciful, and he's also righteous, holy, and just, and the Bible has a lot to say about justice. Psalm 82 says, defend the weak and fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Isaiah 117 says, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. A very well-known passage, Micah 6.8 says, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Luke 11:42 says, Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Our God is a God of justice, and justice is part of the good news of the kingdom of God. As we saw earlier from the passage in Luke 4, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free. Injustice and oppression grieve the heart of God. One of my best friends sent me an article this week about a judge in Tennessee who jailed children for a crime that doesn't even exist. 
A coworker sent me a video of a teacher in California openly mocking the culture and traditions of indigenous people, including the indigenous students in her class. 5,296 children have been found in unmarked graves at former residential schools across North America. These things grieve the heart of God and are antithetical to his kingdom. As Christians, we can't hear about these kinds of things and turn a blind eye. We can't hear about racial injustice and make excuses for it. We can't hear about homophobia and harden our hearts towards it. We can't hear about the genocide of indigenous children and culture and not take action towards reconciliation. We can't hear about the poor, the disenfranchised, the marginalized, and become apathetic to it. All of these people are human beings created in the image of God. And if we truly want to bring his kingdom, we need to seek godly justice for the marginalized. James H. Cohn, in his profound book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, says, the gospel of Jesus is not a rational concept to be explained in a theory of salvation, but a story about God's presence in Jesus' solidarity with the oppressed, which led to his death on the cross. What is redemptive is the faith that God snatches victory out of defeat, life out of death, and hope out of despair. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Freedom for the oppressed and the poor, the marginalized, the disenfranchised. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to stand by living a comfortable life while people all around me are broken and hurting. Like the sower in the second parable we looked at, who springs into action when the harvest is ready, I want to be an active participant in bringing the good news of the kingdom of God to a world that so desperately needs it. By doing right, by seeking justice, defending the oppressed, taking up the cause of the fatherless, and pleading the case of the widow. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and lead us in a final song. And as they lead us, I'd encourage you to ask God to examine your heart. Is your heart the fertile soil that Pastor Trent spoke about last week? Are you listening? Are you really listening to what God has to say to you? Or are you looking and hearing, but not truly seeing and listening? The kingdom of God is good news for all who have ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to understand. Would you bow your heads with me? I'd like to challenge you to ask God to reveal to you any barriers in your life that are preventing you from fully participating with God in the kingdom work that he is doing here on earth. Maybe your relationship with Christ has been distant, or maybe you've never had a relationship with him. So the seeds aren't growing and producing fruit in your own life. Maybe it's the things of this world, that slow, subtle creep of idolatry that's preventing you from fully participating in God's kingdom work. Maybe you're discouraged because the seeds that you've sown you haven't yet seen the grain become ripe. Maybe there are fears preventing you from placing that lamp on the lampstand, and instead you're keeping it hidden under a bed. Maybe you have the fear of being rejected, of being ostracized, the fear of not being good enough or smart enough or eloquent enough to share the good news. If there's any barrier in your life that's preventing you from fully participating in God's kingdom work, ask him to reveal it to you now.
whatever that barrier is, God is bigger than that. God can remove that barrier if only you will ask him. God, I thank you for the good news of your kingdom, both the present reality and the future hope. I thank you for inviting us to participate in the kingdom work that you are doing in the here and now. I thank you for the boldness of those who asked your spirit to point out to them things in their life that may be holding them back from the work you have for us to do, from opportunities to spread the seed of your good news in the lives of those around us. I pray that you would remove those barriers, that you would give each person the love, the generosity, the hospitality, and the overflow of the fruits of the Spirit that come from abiding in you. I pray that you would give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the heart to understand your good news and the work that you're doing in the world around us, and give us the courage and the boldness to join you in that work. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.